Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino, continues his look at the tulip of Calvinism and the thorns he believes it produces. As you search for meaningful Christmas gifts for your family and friends, may I recommend two great books and one outstanding new DVD, The Great Deceiver by Ken Copley and the brand new book, Invisible War on the Saints by Greg Patton. The Great Deceiver by Ken Copley and the brand new book, Invisible War on the Saints by Greg Patton. Both of these outstanding books are designed to help you have victory. These books show you how to break free of strongholds and how to not be a victim to the great deceiver. The DVD, Heritage Under Attack, features much needed insight on what is happening in Israel. Overlooking the city of Jerusalem, SWRC's Pastor Larry Spargimino and Staff Evangelist Josh Davis sit down for two important conversations with Israeli expert Avi Lipkin. Make sure you have these books and DVD for you and your loved ones. Order The Great Deceiver, Invisible War on the Saints, and the DVD, Heritage Under Attack, when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order on our website, swrc.com. Here's Ministry President Dr. Kenneth Hill with Dr. Larry Spargimino. Brother Larry, it seems to me that we who are dispensationalists see ourselves coming to the end of an age, the age of the church age. In fact, evangelism and missions being a major part of that. The problem with tulip theology is that the tulip theologian stifles evangelism and missions. And some will take offense to that. Please don't do so. But by and large, we see that to be the case. So they think maybe what will be will be. It's just going to happen. What's the use? Why do we do evangelism? What God wants is what God will have. So do you have some insight into that, maybe some stories you can share with us? One Christian and his wife who came to faith through Harvest Crusades, led by Greg Laurie, their lives were radically changed. The love that they had for each other, the way they raised their kids was a marvel. Praise God. They were, I mean, it was just a beautiful thing. And Ken, they became true soul winners. They had a tremendous burden for the lost. So in an attempt at creative witnessing and non-churchy outreach, they started having Saturday afternoon parties at their home. It was all very low-key. And after the meal, they showed an evangelistic film. They would tell people, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They had several people publicly profess their faith in baptism and join their church, and they stick. The husband began sharing his faith at work, and one of his co-workers was a Reformed Baptist, five points all the way. He told the husband that he was telling people the wrong thing. He said, it's not true that God loves you and has a plan for your life. The Bible doesn't teach that, he said. So the co-worker gave the husband some Calvinistic literature. One of the booklets was titled, For Whom Did Christ Die? And of course, it was pushing limited atonement. The husband read the booklet and concluded that the scriptures do teach limited atonement. 
So he went back to his church. He asked his pastor what he thought of the pastor read the book and was amazed. He said, well, yeah, maybe Jesus doesn't love everyone. Maybe he didn't die for everyone. Maybe we shouldn't ask people to come forward and accept Christ and so on. Well, this really had a chilling effect. This lovely couple and their kids, no more Saturday hot dog cookouts and evangelistic movies, no more witnessing, no more prayers for the lost in the neighborhood. Now, in my estimation, that's criminal, especially at the end of the age. The trumpet could sound at any moment, and we need to be on fire for God. I'm on fire for God. I'll be 82 years of age. I'm pastoring a bilingual church, and we're doing evangelistic work. And the reason why I'm on fire for God is because I believe that what I do makes a difference. And what I don't do also makes a difference. If I witness to somebody, if I love them into the kingdom, if I'm friendly with them, if I have the right scriptures, you know, if I've prayed for them, that makes a difference. We don't want to dampen that zeal. But so many Calvinists in these very, very small churches, all they do is they want to debate the five points. It's very, very sad to me. In fact, You know, there's this story about the army chaplain in the Persian Gulf. The chaplain was asked by his superior to lead a worship service of several hundred people who were involved in petroleum exploration along the Persian Gulf. So, uh, you know, the chaplain was delighted that he had such a large audience. There were people from the U.K., Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and several other Middle Eastern countries all in the congregation. What a great opportunity to share Christ. Well, guess what happened? The chaplain who had this opportunity, he was a Calvinist. And so he gave a lecture on the five points of Calvinism. That's criminal. He should have been holding up Christ. There were people out there who might never have heard the gospel. And yet he goes through all the T-U-L-I-P theology. These people get so confused and so blinded by their theology that they forget what's really important. His name is Jesus. So these are some of the examples that I think show, and I've got many more examples that I know how my life has been affected. You know, all throughout the scriptures, the Bible says, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and so forth and confess their sins, we can make a difference. And we have to get out of this idea that we are the frozen chosen. It's kind of like you and I well know that some of our Calvinist brethren like to criticize Southwest Radio Church because we say God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. I believe that's true. He's still on the throne and prayer changes things. Indeed, but it's one of the things that people ask me about. Isn't that contradictory? Well, no, it's not contradictory. God is sovereign. And he listens to our prayers, and he answers our prayers. And he has promised to do so. Does God lie? Does he say, I will answer your prayers, and then he doesn't? Is he, like a lot of Christians, they say, yeah, I'll pray for you, and they forget all about you? No, God isn't. Jesus Christ himself is making intercession for us on a moment-by-moment basis before Almighty God, our Heavenly Father. Now think about that. Fantastic what God is doing. So it's important for us to understand that there are practical portions of this thing called theology 
some of it is to be dabbled in with a abounding joy, and some is to be dabbled with with a real concern. But when we study the Word of God, we must study the Word of God, and we must then place ourselves in the midst of it. I have as well seen time and time again when churches that were evangelistic and on fire for God, when they changed their theology to a five-point tulip understanding, and the church died. I've talked to a number of my friends who hold to the view of five-point Calvinism. For me, they cannot point to one church that went from a small body to a big body, a big influence, a huge influence, as a five-point Calvinist church. I'm sure they're there, but I haven't found one. Tell me about those. Do you know of those? People like Jonathan Edwards and Spurgeon and others were Calvinists, but when it came to their invitation, when it came to a visitation program, when it came to having a children's message, trying to understand where people are. I mean, Calvinists say, look, if the person's elect, that person's going to get saved. So you don't have to try to reach that person. But these churches who claim to be Calvinist, So many of them that are growing in their actual practice, they don't practice Calvinism. I used to be a PCA pastor. It used to be the Perimeter Church, for example, in Atlanta. I don't even know what's happened to the Perimeter Church, but it's a very outreach-oriented church, and yet it held to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, the shorter catechism. If you compare what the Westminster Standards teach with the practice of this church, that was reaching out to many people. They're totally different. They were in name Presbyterian, conservative Presbyterian, but as far as their practice was concerned, they loved people. They witnessed the people. They went into poor areas. It didn't matter if they were Hispanic or African-American. They just loved people into the kingdom. So the churches that claim to be Calvinistic and are growing, they're really not Calvinistic. We have a number of broadcasters on our various radio stations around the country that are Calvinistic, or at least hold that they are, and whether it be the R.C. Sproul broadcast, Ligonier broadcast and such, or John MacArthur, what's your response to those who say, well, I guess we shouldn't listen to those people? I still enjoy listening to R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. Dr. Sproul is a gifted teacher. Some of his material on the Reformation, the doctrine of the Trinity, why the righteous suffer, and so on, are excellent. And the same is true with John MacArthur. You know, the MacArthur Study Bible is one of the most helpful study Bibles on the market. I have one that's all marked up. I heard Dr. MacArthur in an open Q&A session A young lady asked him about gender dysphoria, about puberty blockers and surgery. It was a difficult question to answer, and the young lady had evidently been struggling. She wanted some answers. Well, Dr. MacArthur did an excellent job in answering her question, and he did it with gentleness and with with kindness. So I don't have to agree with everything a preacher believes to listen to him and to receive a blessing. D. James Kennedy 
when he was alive, was one of my favorite pastors. I enjoyed him immensely, but he was a Reformed Presbyterian. Actually, I have most of John Calvin's commentaries and also the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He was one of the great Reformers, and I readily admit that, but I believe he was all wrong on the sovereignty of God, but not as wrong as some of his followers who added that tulip theology and made it very rigid. Well, it's interesting when we study the Reformers, when we study the, the various church fathers, to see how they have been presented in a different light, in a different way, and the conversation about them is different than what they themselves presented. That's very true. We have to make sure we, we understand a person's position. For example, some people will say, well, you must be an Arminian. I'm not an Arminian. I don't think Arminianism is correct, but I don't think that five-point Calvinism is correct either. So I'm hoping that my book would help people to intelligently think of all the issues, and I hate division, and I don't want anybody to say he doesn't like Sproul or he doesn't like John MacArthur. I admire those men. I admire John Calvin. I admire some of Augustine's writings. In fact, Augustine was a Calvinist about a thousand years before John Calvin. But there are some things, I mean, we don't have to take everything. So I would hope that nobody would say that I'm divisive. I'm really not divisive. I love Jesus. And if anybody loves Jesus the way I love Jesus, I love them and we'll work together. Well, there are two important terms that have not yet been defined, but they were defined in your book. One of them is synergism. The other is monergism. Well, monergism is the view that God works alone in salvation. Calvinists are monergist. God works alone and does not enlist human cooperation. The other view, which I believe is the biblical view, is synergism. God and man work together. The salvation of sinners is totally dependent on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, plus his ascension into heaven. Now, what happened at the ascension? Well, God gave gifts to men. Why? Because God uses men and women as agents of salvation and has gifted them so that they would be effective in that capacity. You know, God could have saved the Ethiopian in the desert without human intervention. God could have spoken to the Ethiopian in some kind of a subliminal way, but God did not do that. He sent Philip. This is synergism. And throughout the scripture, we see God and man working together. God told Joseph to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt because Herod was planning to murder Jesus. So Joseph was an instrument of safety for the Christ child. And then uh, Kenneth and John 11 the people took away the stone from the sepulcher in which Lazarus was buried. Lazarus was supernaturally resuscitated. He was made alive, and yet Jesus commanded people to remove the grave cloths from the resuscitated Lazarus. Once again, we see God and man cooperating. In fact, Paul said, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers, now listen to this, by whom Ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. First Corinthians 3 also says, For we are laborers together with God. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, the apostle writes, I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Wow, that's not a Calvinistic statement. Paul is saving some. What are you talking about? Well, that's in the Bible. Man's part is so important 
that the apostle says that I might by all means save some. So I really think what I see in, in Calvinism is they take some good ideas and they go beyond Scripture. Of course, God is sovereign. Who wants to deny that? But they go beyond Scripture. And you know, Kenneth, I think one of the signs of maturity is that we have a balance. And I think that Calvinists are immature in the sense that they're out of balance. The Scripture has a wonderful balance. When we look at Jesus, fully God and fully man, we see this wonderful balance throughout, and yet Calvinists come and they're unbalanced and unscriptural in some of these matters. Dr. Spargimino lays out why he believes the growing popularity of five-point Calvinism is dangerous and critically hurts the need for evangelism and outreach in his book, Calvinism on Trial. This tulip has thorns. In Calvinism on Trial, Dr. Larry Spargimino reveals how unsuspecting pastors and church leaders are confronted with a theology of inevitability. Dr. Spargimino shows how this theology is dangerous and has a chilling effect on evangelism. Order Calvinism on Trial today when you call 1-800-652-1144. You can also order on our website, swrc.com. Calvinism on Trial by Dr. Larry Spargimino, 1-800-652-1144. Micah Van Huss studies the mysteries of the universe, those marginal mysteries, dinosaurs, giants, UFOs, Micah looks at ancient cities and the gods who built them, and the earth as it was. Soon, his new book will be released, Tackling the World of Secret Societies. Micah is here for the next few moments to whet our appetite and pull back the curtain on one of those questions that need an answer, one of those marginal mysteries. Welcome to the program today. I am Micah Van Huss. I am the host of Marginal Mysteries at Southwest Radio Ministries. And today, I want to entertain a question with you guys. Did man and dinosaurs roam the earth at the same time? Well, let's start by reading Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, verse 25. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So here in Scripture, God creates man and the animals on the same day. Now there are a lot of folks, and even some Christians, who say that, well, evolution was part of this creation process, and you know, it, it kind of took, these, these aren't literal days. I believe that these are literal days, God created them on the day six of creation. I would ask, what is your motivation for not believing in literal days? And think about that yourself if you're one of those folks. What is your motivation for not believing in literal days? The only conclusion that I can come to is that someone is trying to fit in with society and the religion of evolution. It takes faith to believe evolution because nobody alive has ever seen Darwinian evolution. No one has ever seen one animal change from one kind to another. That is not science. The definition of science is an observable experiment. Evolution is a religion, and it takes faith to believe in the theory of evolution. 
So I contend that God did create the earth in six days because he says so in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. He says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and etc. Also, on day seven, Adam didn't rest for a thousand years. But let's digress a little bit. So the word dinosaur means terrible lizard, and you will not find the word dinosaur in the Bible because it wasn't even a word until 1841, invented by Sir Richard Owen. Uh, meaning terrible lizard. But we do read about dinosaurs in the Bible. In Job chapter 40, we read about Behemoth. In Job chapter 41, we read about Leviathan. He also carries on to Psalm 74. Pterodactyls, though not dinosaurs themselves, lived alongside of dinosaurs and belonged to the pterosaur family. Fossils have been found of pterodactyls with wingspans of over 36 feet. So we likely read about these pterodactyls in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 29. Rejoice not thou, whole Palestinia, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. Now, a lot of folks say that this describes snakes, but between you and me, I've never seen a snake that flies. And this describes a fiery flying serpent. As I said, Job describes Leviathan. In Psalm 74, Leviathan is mentioned as having multiple heads. He is a giant sea creature that breathes fire. Where else do we see multiple-headed dragons? Well, we see it in mythology. In Hesiod's Theogony, written around 700 BC, one of Hercules' 12 labors was to defeat the Linearian Hydra. Well, uh, multiple heads having that condition is called polycephony. And can you guess which animal kind is the most susceptible to being born with multiple heads? That would be reptiles, and snakes specifically are the most susceptible to polycephaly. So the hydra may not just be a creature from mythology. In the Masoretic text, from where we get the King James Version of the Bible, uh, we read that Daniel was cast into the lion's den, but there is an apocryphal book of Daniel which has three extra chapters, and in those chapters it describes a giant dragon that Daniel is forced to try to worship, But Daniel does not worship the dragon, uh, ends up killing the dragon, and that is why Daniel is cast into the lion's den. So if you get a chance to read that apocryphal book of Daniel, it's a fascinating story. Alexander the Great came across a 100-foot-tall dragon while invading India in 330 BC. The Roman author Claudius Alanus, in his work on the nature of animals, actually records the encounter of Alexander the Great with this dragon that lived in a cave describes its eyes as being the size of a Macedonian shield. So this was roughly a hundred foot tall dragon that lived in a cave. And the local Indians said, do not kill our God because we worship him. Alexander the Great just passed by the cave with his army and the dragon stuck its head out according to the story. And it's fascinating to see these historical records. But then the question is, why don't we see dinosaurs everywhere today? Well, number one, the, the most dangerous ones were hunted out, I believe. There are numerous stories from around the world of heroes setting out to slay dragons. St. George slays his dragon around the 9th century A.D. Beowulf sets out to slay the dragon. That story is written in the 6th century A.D. Uh, Another reason why we don't see dinosaurs everywhere today is because lizards do not grow as big as they did before the flood in the antediluvian world. Reptiles have an intermediate growth pattern, meaning their size depends on the environmental conditions. And conditions in the antediluvian world before the flood of Noah allowed for lizards to grow into the size of the giant dinosaur fossils that we see today. Now, Trey Smith, in his God in a Nutshell Project YouTube page, he just did a video last month about Tyrannosaurus Rex drawings 
in New Mexico. He even shows a petroglyph of a Tyrannosaurus Rex munching on a human. Fascinating video if you check it out. There's all kinds of stories from around the world of uh, dinosaurs uh, being found. A fascinating one in 1856. Workmen were digging in a railway in France uh, when one large limestone boulder was split open. The workers were astonished to see a large winged creature tumble out. Then the creature fluttered its wings, let out a croaking noise, and died. And this description that they give matches that of a pterodactyl. Now, that's a strange story, but this is not the only story of reptiles living for hundreds of years inside of rocks. Indeed, there are stories of frogs and lizards being found inside of stones when you break them open. And there's so many of these reports that it actually has its own name called Toad in the Hole. So if you ever look up Toad in the Hole, it's actually a phenomenon where lizards and frogs will fall out of rocks if you break them open. Fascinating stuff. 13th century Marco Polo, in his book Travels of Marco Polo, he describes a dragon raised by the Chinese emperor to pull his chariots. The buru is a 15-foot-long reptile described as looking like a, a cross between a crocodile and a snake, and it lived in the Himalayan valley known as Rilo, and it was seen as recently as 1947. Uh, its existence was confirmed by British zoologist Charles Stoner. Now, scientists agree that alligators were on the earth before dinosaurs. So why didn't the comet that supposedly killed the dinosaurs also kill these alligators? That's because their theory is garbage. It's a religion. You have to have faith to believe in evolution because no one can see it happening or be able to reproduce it. It's a religion, and your children are being indoctrinated on your taxpayer dollars in our public schools. All right, so did dinosaurs and man coexist? Man has a natural desire to be free from authority. There will never be enough evidence for a militant evolutionist to admit that God is real. These stories confirm what God says in his word. Man and dinosaurs were created in the same week and therefore coexisted. Now head on over to marginalmysteries.com and get your brand new coexisted t-shirt. That's right. We have a t-shirt coexisted man and dinosaurs. Go to marginalmysteries.com. Check out that t-shirt. Check out my books, ancient cities and the gods who built them, the earth as it was, and very soon to be released secret societies. Blood never sleeps. In the book, Calvinism on trial by Dr. Larry Spar Germino, it is revealed how unsuspecting pastors and church leaders are confronted with a theology of inevitability. What will be, will be. So, what's the use? Dr. Spargimino shows how this theology is dangerous and has a chilling effect on evangelism. Order Calvinism on Trial today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order Calvinism on Trial at our website, swrc.com. Friends, if you have a prayer need, would you let us pray for you? We consider it an honor to pray with you. Prayer requests come in from all over the country through the mail, on the phone, and now through a special email address, prayer at swrc.com. That's prayer at swrc.com. Or you can always just give us a call, 1-800-652-1144. As we're getting closer to the Christmas season, be sure and visit the gifts section of our website, swrc.com. Gifts from Israel as well as books and DVDs that will inform and encourage your family and friends. Visit swrc.com today. Lord willing, we'll be back here Monday, ready to once again bring clarity to the chaos. 
Head into the weekend with the encouragement that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners just like you. Please visit our website, swrc.com. That's swrc.com.